Early on, however, I thought, I'm not sure if this is going to work out along biblical lines. In particular, at one point on page 15, Wolf writes, quote, The gospel adds no new principles of earthly life, but earthly life is restored because of sanctification, which is the infusion of Christ's holiness in us. End quote. No new principles of earthly life? I think I see where Wolf is going here, but such lines, which are common through the volume, give me great pause. I'll suggest below that pushing the nature-slash-grace schema in certain ways gets one into theological and conceptual trouble. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today we are taking another step in our investigation of Christian nationalism. All month long, we are invoking the unassuming style of Peter Falk's Columbo to ask just one more thing about Christian nationalism. We are sitting down with the key voices for and against Christian nationalism, and we're seeking to hear what they have to say about the subject, what Christian nationalism is, what it is not, why it is good, or why it is not. And over the course of these dozen or so interviews, our prayer is that God would give more light than heat to this important subject. Next month, we will begin sorting out some of these claims. But today, we are offering Brad Green's review of Stephen Wolf's book, A Case for Christian Nationalism. This review comes in two parts, with Brad offering a full summary of the book and then a substantive review of Wolf's argument. For anyone familiar with Wolf's book and its popular, or in some cases not so popular reception, we want to offer something a bit different. Instead of simply throwing the book out for issues that have been exacerbated by Twitter spats, we want to engage this book as it challenges us with church history and political theory. At the same time, it introduces arguments and sources that we should consider today, as well as others that we shouldn't. In all, a case for Christian nationalism should press all Christians, whether theologians or not, to ask one question. What does the Bible actually say? In this review, which comes on the heels of our conversation with Stephen Wolfe, our resident church historian at Christ Overall, Brad Green, shows us where Wolfe's book is helpful, but also where it is lacking. Our hope is that through this thorough review, it will press us all to consider more carefully the arguments being put forward for Christian nationalism today, and why some of them need greater biblical precision. And so, coming in at almost an hour and a half, here's Brad Green's review of Stephen Wolfe's A Case for Christian Nationalism. Christian Nationalism, The Way Ahead in Our Day, a review essay by Bradley G. Green, read by Kevin McClure. Part one. I start this review just after having enjoyed an hour-long conversation with Stephen Wolf, when friends at Christ Overall and I recorded a podcast with him. Wolf was friendly, amiable, and happy to discuss his book. It was a pleasure to spend time with him, and I benefited from the time. We here at Christ Overall decided to essentially devote two months exploring the question of Christian nationalism. We decided that during the first month, we would record more podcasts than normal, trying to let both friend and foe of Christian nationalism speak for themselves. The second month will be more or less devoted to our attempts to offer some analysis and criticism. I read every word of Wolf's Christian nationalism. It was dense and turgid at times. 
But Wolf has clearly thought through his thesis and desired to build and support an argument. It is the kind of work that has generated significant criticism. And simply as a matter of principle, I wanted to carefully grasp the nature of the argument before offering any feedback, positive or negative. On this principle, I will offer a two-part response. I'll outline the key arguments put forward by Wolf in part one, and will then proceed to suggest some key strengths and weaknesses, as I see it, of the volume in part two. The heart of the argument. Wolf's The Case for Christian Nationalism is a 478-page volume consisting of a sustained argument made over 10 chapters, also including a 38-page informal epilogue. The volume is, per the title, a thorough argument on behalf of, quote-unquote, Christian nationalism. Wolf defines Christian nationalism as such. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. That's on page nine. I'll read it one more time. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws and social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. It's on page nine. Wolf admirably unpacks and explicates this definition across the volume. And if one grasps his method or perhaps methods, one is a long way to grasping the logic and force of his volume. Consider three aspects of his approach. One, assuming the Reformed tradition. Wolf forthrightly assumes the Reformed tradition, including John Calvin, Johannes Althusius, Protestant Reformed scholastics like Francis Turretin, and more recent Reformed titans like Hermann Bovink. Two, proceeding from natural principles. This is key to Wolf's entire volume. He proceeds from, quote-unquote, a foundation of natural principles, page 18, and, quote, treats natural principles as the foundation, origin, and source of political life, even Christian political life, end quote, page 18. This feeds into an intriguing dualism to which we'll return. But one example, he says, quote, whereas Christian theology considers the Christian mainly in relation to supernatural grace and eternal life, Christian political theory treats man as an earthly being, though bound to a heavenly state, whose political life is fundamentally natural, end quote, page 18. Wolf will proceed to consistently turn to a mixed syllogism. He says, quote, assuming that civil leaders ought to order the people to the true God, a natural principle, we can conclude that civil leaders ought to order the people to the triune God. Why? Because the triune God is the true God, which is a supernatural truth found on page 19. And then the third aspect of his approach is embracing complexity. By quote-unquote complexity, Wolf simply seems to mean he is going to try throughout the volume to lay out an argument that will not necessarily be simple. Wolf's goal is to quote, integrate natural principles and supernatural truths such that nature is applied and fulfilled by means of supernatural truth, end quote, page 19. 
It's worth noting that in this section on complexity, that Wolf is quite candid that his, quote, account of Christian nationalism is Presbyterian Christian nationalism, end quote, is on page 20. We Baptists, therefore, will want to keep our antenna up as we wrestle with Wolf's thesis. The remainder of the introduction, pages 20 through 38, offers a fairly detailed overview of the argument. I especially recommend this for folks who may not want to wade through the entire volume, again, pages 20 through 38. The Body of the Argument The first nine chapters lay out Wolf's argument in great detail. Even though the cover displays the United States, this is not a book about American nationalism, Christian or otherwise. Wolf is quite clear that he's making a general argument for Christian nationalism. His conception of Christian nationalism would then have to be worked out in various ways, depending on the particular time, place, and circumstances of a particular nation. Chapter 10 is then a 35-page reflection on the experience and situation of the United States in particular. Chapters 1 and 2 are theological reflections on man in his quote-unquote three states. Chapter 1, entitled Nations Before the Fall, What is Man? Part 1, Creation. Chapter 1 treats A, man as created in a state of innocence. Chapter 2 treats man B as fallen and then C, man as redeemed. Wolf argues in chapter one that man from the beginning had two ends, an earthly end and a heavenly end or goal. Wolf also argues that some sort of political reality, civil government, would have emerged even apart from sin. Indeed, something like quote-unquote nations, which are distinct political entities of some sort, would have emerged apart from sin, according to Wolf. Wolf offers a clearly Thomistic understanding of sin in general in chapter two. Thomistic, that is, from Thomas Aquinas. Wolf says, quote, The false principal effect concerned man's relationship to God and the promised heavenly life, for it removed man's highest gifts, those that drew him to the heavenly life. End quote. It's on page 22. This is key. Wolf says, quote, Man retains his earthly gifts, those that lead him to the fundamental things of earthly life, such as family formation and civil society. Thus, man still has his original instincts and still knows the principles of right action, which incline him to do what is good, end quote, page 22. The keys here, he says, quote, I argue that post-lapsarian social organization, viz. as human society has manifested in post-fall history, reflects true and good principles. But in every time and place, there is some degree of abuse of those principles. Thus, the formation of nations is not a product of the fall. It is natural to man as man. End quote. Page 22. Chapter 2, which is titled, Quote, redeemed nations, what is man, part two, fall and redemption, end quote. Chapter two addresses man as both fallen and redeemed. The key question is this, quote, what changed and what stayed the same in human society before and after the fall, end quote, page 81. Wolf's key premise is that neither sin nor redemption fundamentally changes the pre-fall reality of the rightness and goodness of particular nations. That is, 
distinct and particular nations would have emerged even apart from sin entering the world. Neither the entrance of sin into the world nor God's redemptive activity fundamentally alters the proper status and goodness of individual particular nations. Rather, quote, grace does not destroy what is natural, but restores it. Grace also perfects nature, and thus nations can be Christian nations and commonwealths can be Christian commonwealths, end quote, page 116. In chapter 3, which is titled, Loving Your Nation, The Nation and Nationalism, Wolf advances his argument. Wolf argues that since neither the fall nor grace destroys or abrogates natural human relations, but rather perfects such relations, we know that the, quote, fall did not introduce the natural instinct to love one's own, and grace does not critique or subvert our natural inclinations to love and prefer those nearest and most bound to us, end quote, page 118. That is, quote, the fall introduced the abuse of social relations and malice towards ethnic difference. Grace corrects this abuse and malice, but it does not introduce new principles of human relations, end quote. It's also on page 118. It's this chapter that has ginned up a number of Wolf's critiques. Wolf is happy to argue that persons naturally, and remember for Wolf that nature is good and is perfected and not destroyed by grace, Wolf is happy to argue that persons naturally have affections for their own place and for people similar to oneself. In a kind of summative statement, he says on page 135, quote, a Christian people whose good is found both in cultural particularity and in a universal religion, can and must be for itself as a distinct people in the interest of earthly and heavenly good for itself and its posterity, end quote. In chapter four, which is called Perfecting Your Nation, the Christian Nation, in chapter four, Wolf now gives more explicit attention to not simply nationalism, but to Christian nationalism. And the nature-grace schema that grace perfects nature, including the pre-fall natural reality of nations, this schema is front and center. Wolf provides the following thesis statement on page 174 when he says, quote, a Christian nation is a nation whose particular earthly way of life has been ordered to heavenly life in Christ having been perfected by Christian revelation as grace perfects nature, without undermining that particularity, but rather strengthening it so that people might achieve the complete good, end quote. In this chapter, Wolf lays out a syllogism, which has already been percolating throughout his volume. The syllogism found on page 183 is, in a sense, the heart of the book in a nutshell. Premise one, civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. The major premise is a principle of nature. Premise two, the Christian religion is the true religion. The minor premise is that it's a supernatural premise. Premise three, therefore, civil government ought to direct its people to the Christian religion, which he calls a quote-unquote supernatural conclusion. Thus, Wolf says on page 184 to 85, quote, a supernatural truth, the minor premise, 
can interact with a natural principle, the major premise, that's premise one, and soundly produce a supernatural conclusion, that's premise three, end quote. I believe this syllogism is virtually the pivot upon which the whole argument turns, and Wolf says as much on page 185. On page 188, he says, so, quote, civil government must, by its design, be capable of knowing man's higher end so that it can order man properly to earthly good, end quote. Or he says on page 190, quote, thus, civil government has an interest in directing people in true religion, end quote. Or on page 191, he says, quote, since civil government is able, it ought to direct people to true piety, end quote. Even though Wolf disagrees with a quote-unquote modern version of two kingdoms theology, and David Van Drunen, who advocates that, receives a brief rebuttal on page 96 to 101, Wolf offers his own version of the two kingdoms. Wolf summarizes contemporary two kingdoms theology as holding that the church, which is the locus of the redemptive kingdom, is to be concerned with redemption slash grace and not with, quote, transforming, end quote, the culture. But Wolf makes a distinction between redemption, that which the church is primarily concerned, and restoration of earthly life, that with which Christians should be concerned, even if the church as the church does not really focus here. He makes this argument on page 193 and 194. But as Wolf sees it, redeemed persons will then be concerned with the restoration of all things. The key question on page 194 becomes, quote, whether Christians ought to seek the Christianization of the family, civil society, and civil government, end quote. Chapter five, entitled The Good of Cultural Christianity, pushes back against a fairly common tendency to denigrate, quote unquote, cultural Christianity. Wolf distinguishes between cultural Christianity, a good, albeit a limited good, and quote-unquote Christian culture, which is a more robust good. Wolf affirms that both, one, the civil power of magistrates, and two, cultural Christianity, are supplemental modes of religion. That is, they support true religion, and they point people to their goods, both earthly and spiritual. This is page 208 and 209. Hence, he writes on page 209, quote, Cultural Christianity is a mode of religion because it orders people to eternal life in Christ. Cultural Christianity is defined by Wolf in the following way on page 208 and 209. He says this, quote, Cultural Christianity is a mode of religion wherein social facts normalize Christian cultural practices, i.e. social customs, and a Christian self-conception of a nation in order to, one, prepare people to receive the Christian faith and keep them on the path to eternal life, two, to establish and maintain a commodious social life, and three, to make the earthly city an analogy of the heavenly city. End quote. On the other hand, Christian culture is different. He defines this on page 212, and he says, quote, Christian culture is a public culture in which a people presume a Christian relation between themselves 
and adorn their collective everyday life with Christian symbols, customs, and social expectations in order to mutually orient one another to worship God and love one's neighbor in Christ, end quote. In short, cultural Christianity is preparatory for true religion, which then manifests itself here in a Christian culture, which in turn continues to shape and direct persons to both their earthly and heavenly goods. Sometimes a certain version of his Presbyterianism is front and center. He says on page 217, quote, Pedobaptism, i.e. infant baptism, is the position most natural to Christian nationalism. For baptizing infants brings them outwardly, at least, into the people of God. When the body politic is baptized, all are people of God. End quote. Chapter 6, which is entitled, What Laws Can and Cannot Do Civil Law. This chapter hopes to, quote, complete the material cause of Christian nationalism or the content of Christian national action, end quote, page 243. If chapter five on cultural Christianity was more concerned with, quote unquote, social custom, Wolf now turns to potentially more dicey issues. The question of law, of what a nation both prohibits and requires. On page 245, Wolf defines law as, quote, an ordering of reason by an appropriate lawgiver for the good of the community, end quote. Wolf is working in a natural law mode here, and he speaks of the agreement or congruence of eternal law, natural law, and human or civil law on page 245. Wolf will go on to define civil law on page 248 as, quote, an ordering of reason enacted and promulgated by legitimate civil authority that commands public action for the common good of civil communities, end quote. Again, an ordering of reason enacted and promulgated by legitimate civil authority that commands public action for the common good of civil communities. By now, we know where Wolf is headed. Civil law must direct, point towards, etc., persons to their earthly good. But an earthly good cannot be properly understood until that earthly good is seen as including that very earthly good being pointed to its ultimate heavenly good. One must consider the principle, the end, and the means of civil law. The principle should be, on page 245, he writes, quote, ordering civil life in accordance with natural law principles and circumstances, end quote. And then the end is a, quote, commodious, quiet, and godly life, end quote. The means, on the other hand, will change given the different circumstances. But in general, the means are, quote, unquote, civil judgments concerning outward action. We see this on page 256. In short, civil law should be such that it orders people or colludes in ordering people to the earthly and heavenly goods. Thus, Wolf writes on page 263, quote, a Christian body of law, which contains laws that are distinctively Christian, order the community in reason, indeed to the highest reason and its fulfillment. A Christian body of law is the only complete and true body of law, end quote. In chapter seven, entitled The Christian Prince, Wolf addresses who 
will be the quote-unquote chief agent of Christian nationalism. It's on page 277. He writes on page 277 as well that this person is to be, quote, a mediator, one who translates that national general will into specific commands of action that lead the nation to its good, end quote. This chapter then is concerned with, quote, the efficient cause of Christian nationalism, the agents that bring about the things of Christian nationalism, end quote. It's on page 278. Wolf notes that he could have used another moniker for this title, perhaps simply civil government, 278. But Wolf prefers something like a prince. He writes on page 278, quote, I cannot conceive of a true renewal of Christian commonwealths without great men leading their people to it, end quote. And on page 279, he writes, quote, I envision a measured and theocratic Caesarism, that is Caesarism, the prince as a world shaker for our time, who brings a Christian people to self-consciousness and who in his rise restores their will for their good, end quote. Wolf prefers on page 279 in the second footnote, quote, Caesarism in our time because it emphasizes personality in civil rulers, end quote. Wolf is clear that he affirms the traditional notion of the consent of the governed on page 285. He writes, quote, consent is the mechanism by which divine civil power is bestowed upon the prince, end quote. Indeed, he writes on page 286, quote, We should never forget that although the power of civil leaders is rooted in God, they possess this power mediately and conditionally by an act of the people and in trust for their good, end quote. Though Wolf can usher Calvin to his side with some poignant quotes, it's striking to read Wolf write on page 287, quote, having the highest office on earth, the good prince resembles God to the people. Indeed, he is the closest image of God on earth, end quote. It's similarly striking to read on page 288, quote, the prince is a sort of national God, not in the sense of being divine himself or in materially transcending common humanity or as an object of prayer or spiritual worship or as a means of salvific grace, but as a mediator of divine rule for this nation and as one with the divinely granted power to direct them in their national completeness, end quote. Wolf defines the title Christian Prince on page 292 by saying, quote, the Christian prince is a civil ruler, as divinely ordained in nature, who possesses and uses powers, both civil and interpersonal, to order his people to commodious temporal life and to eternal life in Christ, end quote. It's on page 292. This prince would, or could, quote, enact laws that both correct ungodly and unrighteous features of national culture and support good features of national culture, end quote. It's on page 293. This prince would punish blasphemy, page 293, to, through his personality, quote, persuade, admonish, and encourage righteousness and piety, end quote. It's also page 293. He could, quote, use civil power to ensure that the culture of his people reflects true religion, end quote, 295. He can, 
quote, Christianize civil life by adorning and perfecting it with true religion, end quote. He can, quote, erect monuments that recall deeds of civic virtue, but that point the people heavenward, end quote, page 296. And he can adorn himself and his residence with Christian symbols, page 296. In short, quote, the Christian prince should exercise his power to secure and supplement Christian civil and material culture and do everything in this power to make his people's his culture as a whole Christian, end quote. That's on page 297. In a fairly lengthy section on the quote-unquote two kingdoms, Wolf argues, quote, that there are two kingdoms, one essentially external, the civil kingdom, and one essentially internal, the spiritual kingdom. Christ does indeed rule over the civil kingdom. With the civil kingdom, he writes on page 300, Christ's civil rule is mediated through earthly civil rule and civil leaders exercise civil power only, end quote. The spiritual kingdom, on the other hand, he writes on page 30301, quote, extends over the church and directly concerns the inward man and the eternal good, end quote. How do the two kingdoms connect if they do? Wolf writes on page 306, quote, the civil kingdom, by its nature, is obligated to order the people to the things of eternal life, and the things of eternal life are found only in Christ's spiritual kingdom, end quote. The prince reforms the church if necessary, page 312, settles doctrine when called for, page 313, would, in principle, eliminate error in the church, page 313, quote, protects the church as a servant of Christ, not as a servant of pastors, end quote, page 315, orders, quote, the civil realm according to the fullness of revealed religion, end quote, so page 315, orders, quote, the civil realm to the divine precepts of Christ, who is king of the church, end quote, page 315. This prince will, quote, suppress false religion, end quote, page 315, and this prince is responsible to, quote, establish true religion according to divine precepts of ceremonial worship, end quote, page 315. Indeed, the prince kisses the son, that's a quote from Psalm 212, by establishing and maintaining these laws of Christ in order to advance Christ's spiritual kingdom, end quote. That comes from page 315. In chapter 8, which is entitled The Right to Revolution, Wolf lays out his case in principle for the right to revolution. In making this case, it should be pointed out that Wolf is in a significant line of Christian thinkers who have argued that when the conditions are right, revolution of subjects towards their ruler can be justified. And this line is Thomas Aquinas, Junius Brutus, Johannes Althusius, and others. Revolution is defined by Wolf on page 326 as follows. A revolution is the forcible reclamation of civil power by the people in order to transfer that power on just and more suitable political arrangements, end quote. 
Wolf is clear on page 327 when he says, quote, the purpose or end of revolution is not violence, nor is it to vanquish enemies of God or humanity, but to establish just and suitable arrangements for a peaceful and godly life, end quote. The ruler who could conceivably be removed forcibly would need to be a tyrant. And Wolf defined tyrant as follows on page 333. He says, quote, a tyrant is any civil ruler whose actions significantly undermine the conditions in which man achieves his true humanity, or as I've called it, the complete good, end quote. Upon my initial reading of this chapter, I was struck that Wolf's bar for revolution was quite low, and I still think that. One might summarize the chapter as making the following two points. One, we are currently, at least in the United States, living in a kind of tyrannical situation. Two, revolution is justified when tyranny exists. Indeed, the first sentence of the book seems to point in the direction of revolution. Quote, the dire situation of Christianity in the West calls for action, end quote. It's also found on page 325. I wonder if I'm reading Wolf correctly, but I believe I am. The argument of the volume is that the civil government, quote, ought to direct its people to the Christian religion, end quote. It's on page 183, back in chapter four. And in chapter eight, Wolf contends on page 338, quote, are Christians permitted to conduct revolution against a tyrant whose actions are significantly detrimental to true religion? I affirm this, end quote. A key question to put to Wolf would be, if the civil magistrate is not, quote unquote, directing its people to the true Christian religion, end quote, is that civil magistrate's action, quote, detrimental to true religion, end quote. If so, and this is what Wolf seems to be arguing, then revolution would be justified now, even at this moment in the United States. The chapter ends with these words in page 352. He says, quote, we have the power and the right to act. Let us train the will and cultivate our resolve, end quote. Chapter nine, entitled Liberty of Conscience, raises a perennial and classic question for believers. What about issues like liberty of conscience, religious liberty, and religious toleration? If Christian nationalism affirms some kind of official affirmation of and privilege of Christianity, does this imply some sort of violation of liberty of conscience, religious liberty, and religious toleration? Wolf's shorter answer is no, for he's concerned more centrally with the encouragement and discouragement of certain outward acts. The civil magistrate cannot, by definition, control or subjugate the conscience, so no violation of the liberty of conscience is in view. Nonetheless, Wolf is quite candid, even with some bravado, that the civil magistrate would or could have quite wide powers in terms of external behavior. Summatively, he writes, quote, the question is whether a Christian magistrate, having civil rule over a civil society of Christians, may punish with civil power false teachers, heretics, blasphemers, and idolaters for their external expressions of such things in order to prevent, one, any injury to the souls of the people of God, 
Two, the subversion of Christian government, Christian culture, or spiritual discipline. Or three, civil disruption or unrest, end quote. He then writes, quote, modern religious liberty advocates deny this, and I affirm it, end quote. That's on page 359. Returning to a form of the syllogism that drives the volume, Wolf writes on page 361, premise one, any outward action that has the potential to cause harm to others is rightfully subject to civil restraint or punishment in principle. Premise two, external false religion has the potential to cause harm to others. Therefore, premise three, external false religion is rightfully subject to civil restraint or punishment. Wolf seems a tad cavalier in my view at points in this chapter. Thus, concerning quote-unquote arch heretics, Wolf can write on page 391, quote, banishment and long-term imprisonment may suffice as well, end quote. Concerning non-Christians who proselytize, on page 392, he says they might be, quote, subject to the same process and punishments, end quote. As far as dissenting Christians, e.g. particular Baptists, depending on the circumstances, he writes on page 393 that, quote, active suppression at times may be appropriate, e.g. early New England, while complete toleration might be more suitable at other times, e.g. early American Republic, end quote. In fairness to Wolf, he immediately writes on page 394, quote, wide toleration is desirable in my view, for it displays the beauty of Protestant theology, that different brethren can recognize their mutual union with Christ and live together in peace, end quote. Fair enough, but for us dissenters, this is a bit unsatisfying. Chapter 10, which is entitled The Foundation of American Freedom, Anglo-Protestant Experience. Chapter 10 is the final main chapter of the volume and it essentially explores the thesis of the volume in relationship to the early history of the United States. Wolf's key thesis is the political arrangement forged at the founding of the United States is in fundamental continuity and not discontinuity with classic reformed theology, especially political thought and political theology. That is, the same essential principles bequeathed by classical reformed Protestantism are worked out in a particular way at the American founding. In short, he writes on page 430, quote, despite appearances, the majority view on religious liberty in the founding era shared the same principles as the 17th century New England Puritans, end quote. So what differentiates the early American political settlement and experience from an older Protestantism and an older Puritanism? Wolf writes on page 430, quote, the apparent discontinuity found in the historical record is a product of Anglo-Protestant experience, which informed the imagination of the possibilities of public order amid Protestant religious diversity, end quote. The almost 40-page epilogue offers some more freewheeling reflections from Wolf. I'll return to this in part two of this review, as I offer some proposed strengths and weaknesses that engage with a summary provided above. Christian Nationalism, The Way Ahead in Our Day, a review essay, part two. There's a lot to comment upon with this book. 
I offer here my perspective on the book's strengths and weaknesses, and then I offer a few concluding comments. First, Wolf has written an extensive Christian reflection on the reality of political or social order. He has tried to articulate and explicate a very specific argument. The argument is essentially that the civil government, and his emphasis is on the national level of government, at least in the United States, that the civil government is duty-bound to advance the good, both earthly and spiritual, of the citizenry. As such, it is simply the case that the civil, especially national government, ought to lead or rule in a way that advances both the earthly and spiritual good of citizens. Second, Wolf has worked through a significant body of literature, both explicitly Christian literature as well as broader and not explicitly Christian literature. He's particularly interested in mining the various political theological insights from the 16th and 17th century Reformed Protestant tradition, but he also turns as well to such ancient statesmen as Cicero. He comments early on that he's not a theologian, and he's happy to lean on the great Reformed Protestant voices as central building blocks of his project. While some, e.g. Brian Matson, has criticized Wolf for ignoring those aspects of the Reformed Protestant tradition that are not as friendly to his project, I benefited from Wolf's summary-slash-exposition of the Reformed Protestant tradition as it touches on political theology. Third, Wolf is not content to hem and haw and stammer and stutter, etc. He's a man on a mission, and he says what he means, and he means what he says, as far as I can tell. He doesn't appear to be afraid to work out the implications of his project, which includes the possible persecution of heretics, requiring church attendance, and even suggesting that a Christian minority might be able to lead in taking over the levers of political power, all in service of the project of advancing the goods of citizens, both the citizens' earthly and spiritual goods. While some, e.g. Kevin DeYoung, whose review I benefited from, severely criticized Wolf's 40-page epilogue, I found it somewhat refreshing for a work of scholarship like this to end on a rather freewheeling and informal way. Nonetheless, I don't necessarily agree with all that was argued or suggested in the epilogue. Fourth, Wolf is offering a very thoughtful and thorough answer to a perennial, unescapable, and critical question or issue which faces any Christian attempt to forge a biblical theological understanding of civil government. This is the basic question. By what standard? That is, by what standard should the civil government rule, legislate, or govern? The question becomes more acute, of course, in light of the Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans 13. For in that classic passage, the Apostle of Grace teaches that the civil magistrates is slash are God's servant for your good, Romans 13, 4, a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, Romans 13, 4, and ministers of God, Romans 13, 6. Wolf is quite happy and eager and is quite explicit that the civil magistrate is all of these things, and therefore, of course, the civil magistrate must rule in an explicitly Christian way, including, at least potentially, the suppression of heresy, requiring church attendance, and perhaps even applying the death penalty in some cases of particularly egregious blasphemy. In short, Wolf joins a significant chorus of persons, e.g. Patrick Deneen, though this is still certainly in a minority, I, I would think, who are quite eager to affirm that classical liberalism 
of virtually every stripe is a dead letter, and that it is time for Christians to quote-unquote wield power on behalf of the church, and this means a quite explicit establishment of Christianity in the legal political sense. During the entire time I've been thinking about these issues, beginning sometime in my teens, there seems to have been a clear pattern that's dominated politics in the U.S. There's been, on my view, a kind of two-pronged schema. One, the call from the left to expand the size, scope, reach, and influence of the role of government at all levels, but particularly at the level of the federal government. And then two, whatever areas are within the scope of these various levels of civil government must be sanitized of any religious, and especially Christian, influence whatsoever. This expanding and secularizing political two-step has been relentless and vicious and has put evangelicals and various political conservatives and traditionalists on the defensive, to say the least. It has also marginalized Christians and conservatives slash traditionalists, again, to say the least. Wolf, but also various Catholic integralists, are apparently saying, and this is my somewhat playful paraphrase, they're saying something like this. Okay, enough is enough. The real game is not a kind of classical, civil, liberal, live and let live. We see that now. If what we're really engaged in is a kind of real politic wherein some vision of the good is going to be advanced by the various levels of civil government, again, especially the federal government, and this is going to happen by force, and this vision of the good is going to be inescapably and inextricably religious, then so be it. Count us in. We'll play too. Let's do this. Think of West Side Story, that play with the Jets and the Sharks agreeing to meet for a a rumble or a fight. Except no one's going to engage in some entertaining dance scene with an ultimately happy ending. As I've watched things develop over the last decade or so, it's as if the gloves are coming off. Whatever James Lindsay's strengths are, and there are many, and I really like having him in my corner in certain ways, his answer which is returning essentially to the insights of the Enlightenment, is a dead end. Wolf's position that the Enlightenment option of classical liberalism, which seems to presume some kind of neutral public square, has in many ways proved inadequate, that position is fundamentally a legitimate assertion which must be taken seriously. Now, however, let me turn to what I think are the chief weaknesses of the book. Weaknesses nature, and grace. A key theological philosophical theme throughout the book is Wolf's use of nature and grace. Here, Wolf is clearly drawing from Thomas Aquinas, but wanting to work within the Thomist nature-grace schema as worked out in various Protestant Reformed luminaries. Wolf, I believe, sees himself as applying a basic principle, namely that grace perfects nature. One of the ways that Wolf does this is by laying out a syllogism, a syllogism which in different ways is worked out throughout the rest of the book. He says, premise one, civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. Two, the Christian religion is that true religion. And then three, therefore, civil government ought to direct its people to the Christian religion. If the reader of this review has not read Wolf's work yet, I would encourage the reader to ponder this argument. I believe it has a certain force, and it's not easily evaded. 
it is at least worth thinking through. Early on, however, I thought, I'm not sure if this is going to work out along biblical lines. In particular, at one point on page 15, Wolf writes, quote, The gospel adds no new principles of earthly life, but earthly life is restored because of sanctification, which is the infusion of Christ's holiness in us. End quote. No new principles of earthly life? I think I see where Wolf is going here, but such lines, which are common through the volume, give me great pause. I'll suggest below that pushing the nature-slash-grace schema in certain ways gets one into theological and conceptual trouble. As Wolf introduces and explicates this argument, he writes on page 183, quote, One important principle of this work is that a supernatural application can follow from a natural principle, or put differently, that a natural principle can be fulfilled by thing of grace, end quote. Or again on page 183, quote, natural principles can have supernatural conclusions, end quote. Or page 184 to 185, he says, quote, a supernatural truth can interact with a natural principle and soundly produce a supernatural conclusion, end quote. Or finally, page 185, quote, the fact that natural principles can have supernatural conclusions is crucial for my argument throughout this book, end quote. Thus, there is nature, which is good, and grace does not destroy this natural state of things, but perfects it. The natural order which Wolf has in mind is the good reality of persons forming political entities to accomplish certain ends. Grace does not destroy or annul or abolish such natural motivations and activities. Rather, grace perfects such natural activities, or that's how his argument goes. What is one to do with this basic nature-slash-grace approach? We should note that Wolf begins his work with some important comments about his method. For example, in defining Christian nationalism, he writes on page 9, quote, I proceed from the meaning or denotation of the words involved, particularly nation and nationalism, and I then consider nationalism modified by the term Christian, end quote. If one were going to take a certain kind of general Thomistic stance and apply it to political theory, it would be hard to improve upon such a statement. But this nature-slash-grace approach is understandable, for Wolf is quite clear he is trying to write a Christian political theory. He takes the Protestant Reformed tradition as a starting point, which is fine, and alloys this with his own understanding of the nature and the grace. Wolf is quite upfront, saying several times that he's not really a theologian, but a Calvinist who is taking the Reformed dogmatic tradition as something of a given and then working from there. Fair enough, but let's take an insight from Thomas Aquinas and work it out a bit. In Thomas's work, De Ente et Essentia, or On Being and Essence, he could write, quote, a little error in the beginning leads to a great one in the end, end quote. This is the very first sentence of the work. 
Hermann Doiverd, 1894-1977, was a Dutch Reformed philosopher, and he was no fan of Thomas and the scholastic tradition in which Thomas was a part. But we could say that Doiverd would have agreed with Thomas's basic assertion that a little error in the beginning leads to a great one in the end. Doiverd offered a trenchant critique of the nature-grace paradigm and schema. Uh, one need not follow Doiverd to appreciate his insights. Doiverd suggested that there are a number of key schema or motives which have dominated Western thought. Among other works, the most central is his magnum opus called New Critique of Theoretical Thought. Three of these schema or motives are, one, the Greek form and matter motive, two, the scholastic nature and grace motive, and then three, the humanistic nature and freedom motive. Doiverd's point was that these schema slash motives were fundamentally non-Christian. Thus, the advocates or proponents of these general schema slash motives tended to oscillate between the two poles of each schema. One, between form and matter, as in Greek thought. Two, between nature and grace, as in scholastic thought. And three, between nature and freedom, as in humanistic thought. For our purposes, we can bracket whether Doiverd must be followed fastidiously here. But let us think in the picture sense for a moment. The final and true motive was four, the radical biblical motive of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. One of Doiverd's central critiques of the various strands of Western thought is that various non-Christian philosophies and worldviews each tends to follow one of the first three listed above. That's form, matter, nature, grace, and nature, freedom. This is a mistake, for they each start in the wrong place. Hence, they start in the wrong place with the wrong motive, and so always end up in contradiction and confusion. Again, a little error in the beginning leads to a great one in the end. I've become convinced that one of the ways to come to terms with Wolf's project is to recognize that one of his key starting points, namely the nature-grace dualism, likely determines in certain ways where he goes or ends up. I've also become convinced that when this nature-slash-grace starting point is combined with other key building blocks of his project, one can see why he ends up where he does and why perhaps many of us will be unable to follow him. Several aspects of his basic building blocks would be the following. One, the nature-grace dualism. Two, a lack of serious attention to scripture. And three, not taking into account the historical redemptive sweep of scriptures, which is also a key element of the Reformed tradition, e.g. Gerhardus Voss and Richard Gaffin. Perhaps this combination of one, the nature-grace dualism, with two, a lack of serious attention to Scripture, along with three, not taking into account the redemptive historical sweep of Scripture, helps explain some of the lacunae in Wolf's argument. That is, some of the, the missing points. Wolf has built a system consisting centrally of, one, his fundamental three-part syllogism, which we've looked at a number of times, which is combined with, two, his nature-grace dualism. 
there is so little attention to scripture and the historical redemptive sweep of scripture that his account is ultimately theologically anemic and incomplete. Thus, his account of two kingdoms is generally rooted in key Reformed Protestant dogmaticians, whom I love, rather than holy writ, rather than holy scriptures. Yes, he admits that he is working as a historian within the tradition, but at some point, the tradition that gave us sola scriptura requires the Reformed scholar to engage the text. One example, Wolf has been roundly criticized for his views on ethnic commonality and the like. This aspect of Wolf's thesis was bound to generate criticism, but especially so in our own highly politically pitched day. Uh, one can understand something of Wolf's point. Should I criticize my best friend from high school, a Korean friend, when he returns to our hometown after college, having married a sweet Korean woman? Of course not. Should any person be surprised or morally appalled or offended when many persons' spouses have many similarities to themselves? Of course not. But at the same time, one reads Wolf's various comments on ethnicity and the like, looking in vain for what distinguishes a Christian understanding of ethnic relations from a non-Christian account. One wonders if some deep reading in Gerhardus Voss or Richard Gaffin or Graeme Goldsworthy or the like, all persons who have written at length in the area of biblical theology and the redemptive historical nature of the canon, would have yielded a different understanding of ethnicity than the one Wolf currently has. I have in mind fundamental and architectonic biblical principles flowing from Genesis 12.3, where God promises to bless all nations through Abraham, or Revelation 5.9 and 7.9, where persons from every tribe and language and people and nation surround the throne of the Lord Jesus, praising him. Ephesians 2 is especially important. While I think this text is somewhat abused at times to advance a somewhat confused articulation of quote-unquote racial reconciliation, the text most certainly does help Christians think about the way in which perhaps a more quote ethnic emphasis in the Old Covenant has been transposed in the New Covenant. Thus, in Ephesians 2, a key reality is that God has, in Ephesians 2.15, created one new man. And that God has brought Jew and Gentile into, quote, one new body through the cross, end quote. It's 2.16. Thus, all Christians are now, in Ephesians 2.19, quote, fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, end quote. While it's not fair to criticize someone for not writing the book one wishes the author to have written, it's nonetheless fair to point out that a closer attention to Scripture would have strengthened or improved or even corrected a key argument of someone's book. A fair look at Romans 13. Any Christian political theory must come to terms with Romans 13, where Paul can clearly teach that God has instituted civil government and that he calls the civil magistrate God's servant and a servant of God and ministers of God in 13.4 and 13.6, and even an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer, also in 13.4. As I read Wolf's book, I was reading Wolf repeatedly and consistently argue that civil magistrate must act for the good of the people, which includes earthly and heavenly good. And I consistently heard him argue along the following lines, like what he says in page 386, quote, at this time, 
Power is wielded against the church. Let us wield power in support of the church, end quote. Wolf can even suggest that a minority of Christians on page 345 and 346 just might be able to, quote, establish a political state over the whole without the positive consent of the whole, end quote. Indeed, he writes on page 346, quote, if a Christian minority can constitute a secure commonwealth for true justice and the complete good, then they can disregard the withholding of consent by non-Christians, end quote. Unfortunately, Wolf only spends less than three pages on Romans 13, on pages 349 to 351. When Paul wrote Romans around AD 57, Nero would have been the emperor. Wolf offers this brief treatment of Romans 13 in chapter 8 and the right to revolution. But if Nero was a wicked ruler, which virtually all agree he was, then shouldn't Paul counsel Christians not to submit to him? And why did Paul not counsel his readers to engage in revolution? Since in this chapter, Wolf is most certainly making the case for revolution, at least as a morally acceptable option given the right circumstances. But Wolf's articulation of, quote-unquote, the power ordained of God is an interesting one. He argues that, quote, since the powers ordained of God are only for good, no power ordained of God can command what is evil, and thus no evil command is conscience-binding, for only God can bind the conscience, whether immediately or immediately. It's on page 350, end quote. Almost every word of this argument must be examined. Paul writes in Romans 13.1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. End quote. The words for authorities and authority is the Greek word exousia, and can indeed be translated as power and authority, and the Greek lexicons list an office or magistrate or the body of the magistrates as possible interpretive options when you look at Liddell and Scott. But Wolf uses power on page 350, and he's speaking of it in an abstract or an ideal sense. Thus, he can write on page 350 that the powers ordained of God are only for good, end quote. And hence, quote, no power of God can command what is evil, end quote. It's also page 350. Here's what's happening, I think. Paul is saying, if I may paraphrase and extrapolate, every civil power or magistrate has arisen, and this is indeed a mystery, under God's sovereign rule. These powers will do a variety of things, both good and evil, given that we live in a fallen world. But such powers, ideally, should act for your good. That's what I'm saying. That's what I think Paul is meaning. Wolf is saying that political power, manifested at times by the magistrate, only really exists when they're being used for good, for power in the abstract, if it is truly ordained of God, cannot command evil. That's what Wolf seems to be saying. In short, whereas Paul is using power or authority, this is the Greek word exousia, 
in the sense of civil magistrate, Wolf seems, I think at least, to be using power in a more rarefied sense, and hence it only exists when it is commanding the good. Thus, when a person, one, resists a civil magistrate who is either commanding a person to sin or is forbidding one from obeying God, one is not actually, two, resisting the authorities or powers, for in a sense, the powers or authorities have been interpreted as only, in a sense, actually existing as ordained by God when they're commanding the good. In short, Christians, in a sense, according to Wolf, can't really even resist the powers and authorities unless these powers and authorities are commanding something righteous or unless these powers and authorities are commanding something which accords with God's moral nature. For when a civil magistrate commands something that's not in accord with God's moral nature, this power or authority has, in fact, in this case, dissipated or disappeared, according to Wolf. Why nationalism? As I read Wolf's volume, I repeatedly wondered why nationalism was the preferred mode of thinking. A part of this, I believe, is because of the way he structures his argument. Wolf sees something like nations as what would have developed if Adam had not fallen. When this premise is combined with a Thomistic grace perfects nature schema, a conclusion quite naturally follows. The gospel, or grace, perfects what was given with creation, nature, a natural world that would eventually result in the development of nations. As I read the volume, however, I kept asking, why not prefer smaller political entities or units? Thus, why not prefer states in a U.S. context or provinces in a Canadian context? That is, why an emphasis on the nation? Wolf is clearly a certain kind of conservative. He mentioned sympathies for paleoconservatism in our podcast with him, a sympathy which I share. As Christian thinkers reflect upon our current situation, we should ask, how did we get to a situation where we live in a world where shocking amounts of political power is centralized in a Leviathan-style central or federal or national governments? Given Wolf's training and scholarship, he knows all of this. Wolf makes a significant number of references to the German political theorist Johannes Althusius, who lived from 1563 to 1638. Althusius offered his own unique political theory, especially as seen in his 1603 Politica, Politica Methodis Digesta, Atque Exemplis Sacris et Profanis Illustrata. That's the full title. Althusius articulated a view of political order in which there are many different kinds of overlapping political units or entities, all with significantly limited authority. Authority flows from the people upward, and this political authority, which would eventually be called the quote-unquote consent of the governed, could always, given the right situation, be recalled. Althusius can be understood in opposition to Thomas Hobbes, who lived from 1588 to 1679, who in his Leviathan, that's the book he wrote, offered a quite different understanding. For Hobbes, people are born with virtually unbounded freedom, but for the sake of political peace and security, they surrender their freedom 
to a Leviathan. That's the government. But with Hobbes, this surrender of freedom is virtually a one-way and one-time act. People, in a sense, engage in a significant gambit. They surrender their freedom to a centralized authority, which in turn agrees to provide a certain level of order in society. But while Wolf makes repeated use of Althusius, we might say that Althusius is resourced to advance a kind of quasi-Hobbesian goal of a kind of centralized Christian political power, i.e. the Christian prince, who can direct people to their earthly and spiritual goods. When I asked Wolf about this, he understood my line of questioning, but he was firm that he thinks the best option is to concentrate on the nation and not necessarily smaller political units. For the last 30 years or so of my familiarity with Althusius, people have resourced from Althusius in order to show why limited and smaller political units can help guard against dangerous kinds of centralized power. We might think of the last 200 years or so in the West as a kind of victory of Hobbes over Althusius. That is, we've seen in the West an ever-increasing kind of desire for centralized political power and authority. Althusius has traditionally been used to help advance an argument for smaller political units and authorities and to argue against the kind of centralized and often totalitarian political vision which seems to flow from a Hobbesian understanding. I wonder if a more thoroughly Althusian political vision might have led Wolf to be less of a quote-unquote nationalist and to be more interested in a smaller and a more human scale of political entities. Does the syllogism work? We've noted that Wolf's work is driven by this key syllogism. One, civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. This is a major premise. It's a principle of nature. Two, the Christian religion is the true religion. This is the minor premise, a supernatural premise. And then these lead, therefore, to the third premise, that civil government ought to direct its people to the Christian religion. And this is the supernatural conclusion. In logic, some of the rules are fairly simple. If the premises are true and the conclusions follow from the premises, then the argument is both valid and sound. When one reads Wolf's syllogism, it might seem flawless. The second premise for the Christian must be true. Of course, Christians believe that the Christian religion is the true religion. So if the first premise is true and the second premise is true, well, then some form of the conclusion seems to be true. So what's one to do? I think it's possible to question the first premise that a civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. I think it's also the case that even if one grants a form of the first premise, that one can challenge or modify the final conclusion that civil government ought to direct its people to the Christian religion. Regarding the first premise, the civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. Regarding that premise, I think it can be questioned or modified. One could modify it by saying something like, quote, civil government ought to so govern in such a way so that persons are given the opportunity to seek the Lord. And it is also the case that civil government ought not to prohibit citizens from seeking the Lord. 
End quote. This clearly softens the edge of Wolf's first premise and could also lead to a softening of the final conclusion, the conclusion that civil government ought to direct its people to the Christian religion. In fact, if we embrace my reworking of the first premise as I've done, we've effectively posited a premise that could serve as the conclusion as well. What's happened? Simply this. As I think about argumentation, I'm trying to do so with a more explicit reliance on special revelation. I have, in fact, not granted that one must start with nature. I'm rejecting the nature-grace schema as my necessary starting point. Here, I've been helped in my study of logic by Vern Poitras, especially his 2013 book called Logic, A God-Centered Approach to the Foundation of Western Thought. We could also expand or modify or develop our premises and conclusions in various ways. Thus, I might argue the following. First premise, civil government ought to direct its people to the true religion. Second premise, in a fallen world with fallen creatures, it's wise and prudent for civil government to be satisfied with encouraging righteousness and punishing wickedness. Third premise, the Christian religion is the true religion. Therefore, fourth premise, civil government ought to govern in such a way that persons are encouraged to pursue the Christian religion and are not hindered from doing so. In short, I think there are numerous ways to rework or to challenge Wolf's intriguing syllogism. Conclusion. It's a testimony to the provocative and stimulating thesis of Wolf's volume that his book has generated a plethora of reviews. I read the work thoroughly and have been encouraged to think and rethink many issues in what is sometimes called political theology. It's intriguing that this book was published by Canon Press, which is closely associated with Douglas Wilson. I've benefited from Wilson's work over the years, and I actually think Wolf and Wilson are engaging in somewhat different projects. If one reads Wilson closely, he's a Bible guy. I wonder if in the months and years ahead, the difference between Wilson's vision and Wolf's vision will become more and more clear. I suspect that this will be the case. While I've noted various strengths, I think the Achilles heel is that Wolf is engaging in a kind of Thomistic nature-slash-grace project building upon his fundamental syllogism just discussed above. In short, he's written a political theology without meaningful recourse to Scripture. I wonder if Wolf might return with a 2.0 version of his thesis, which is richly grounded in biblical exegesis and theology. Any truly Christian political theology and Christian construal of statecraft requires such labors. I cannot jump onto the Christian nationalism train as articulated by Wolf, but he is a clearly gifted man. I look forward to what comes next. The kind of secularism which Wolf rightly bemoans has been and will continue to be a disaster. Like Wolf, many wise Christians have made an obvious point. The future of any nation will either be Christian or pagan or demonic. Bob Dylan was right. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. 
Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody.